I do get a lot of requests from people wanting to break into this mm. space. There's lots of different backgrounds that people can have to come in, not just the traditional two years banking, consulting, two-year startup. And I encourage people to really just start thinking about the process of VC. There's like the sourcing, picking, helping, exiting. And you want to demonstrate competence in one of these things. To the extent that you think you have interesting sourcing or picking skills, start writing about it. Show a record of your thinking. Because that's essentially right. what investing is. It's like thinking right. and then making a decision. And I don't encourage people with pure finance backgrounds to go straight into VC, at least early stage, whereas a lot of early stages like pretty hands-on and operational, and you don't have a ton of context or empathy for that stage. So I do always encourage people, if you've just done two years banking, go work at a company or even fresh grads, go work at a company instead of trying to get straight into VC out of college. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build a future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Nodeflare is a trusted recruiting partner for startups looking to scale their technology teams. They have a curated pipeline of talent from data scientists to full-stack engineers. Learn about the latest salary trends and benchmark compensation across the region. Nodeflare offers more than 10,000 verified salary data points completely free to employers. Check out www.nodeflare.com today. Hey, Shuyen. Another morning, another podcast. How's it going? It's been quite an eventful week, but not in technology. I know, right? Is this like... Wow, there's so much to discuss privately, but you know, is this, is this relevant for the show? Is this what the readers want? Sadly, no. Oh, Sadly such no. a shame. But the biggest news of the week was, did you get your Taylor Swift tickets? I did get Taylor Swift tickets. <laughs> How did you know that I was queuing for them with all of Singapore and the entire region? So you had those special cards that you had the priority access, were you queuing up how many devices? How did you get it? My wife has a UOB card. She has a UOB ladies card, which I have to say is the ugliest credit card on earth. And it's so stereotypical. It is pink and has ugly flowers and it gives you rewards for tuition and groceries. Like it's horrible. But, you know, we do buy groceries. And so we have this card and it came through for us in the purchase of Taylor Swift tickets. So, yes. so now there's no way you can blame her for the ugliness anymore. Since it's got a ticket, right? I don't blame her. I don't blame her. I blame whoever just, just designed this card. It's like hideous. I feel like if you were designing a card, you want a card that when somebody pulls it out to pay for something, other people are like, wow, what's that? Not like, wow, that's really freaking ugly. <laughs> And we were saying a little bit about it was just the fact that, you know, you sold out in eight hours. You know, people are queuing up the sync post. I think there were people all across the region who are flying in from the Philippines and Indonesia just to kind of do those tickets. It's a kind of a crazy blitz. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I think I'm really curious about what the increase in volume of UOB card applications based on this. Not that I think that those are necessarily great top of funnel leads, but I mean, it's sort of insane. I don't even know how much the sponsorship costs, but 
It was great publicity. And it's the only Southeast Asia destination, right? They're not going to other cities in Southeast Asia. So I think we have the whole basket of demand collapse in on Singapore. Yeah, I think I was just reading here what Taylor Swift fans caused a 45% surge in UOB cart application volumes across Southeast Asia. So now... That's pretty insane. It's insane, right? I mean, maybe it's a low base. So I mean, it's a pretty decent base, right? But still, I'm, I'm just wondering in my head, somebody has to do the math, which is like, how much does a sponsorship cost versus a cost yeah. per car application? Of course, I think yeah. actually if they're recurring users, right, are they actually going to move volume into the card, right? I think that's in my head. And I think it's underappreciated because you can buy the card just to kind of get the Taylor Swift tickets. But then are you actually going to move a significant yeah. amount of spend in? It's going to be an interesting analysis. Yeah. I mean, I did a bunch of work on cards before. And so what ends up happening with cards is like people spend a lot of money marketing, like benefits and things like that. And they're mostly just trying to get people to move spend from one card to another, right? Everyone wants to be like the top of wallet card. But the interesting ones are the ones that can actually create new categories of spend. So like places where people previously couldn't use credit cards and then suddenly they can use it. So you're not like trying to move people from one other thing. So like there's a card in the US called Built, where they basically allow people to pay for rent with credit cards. Ooh. There's a bunch of details. So the, the rent payment doesn't actually move on credit card rails, but they give you rewards for paying your rent through their system. And they work with landlords who basically also want more on-time payments, right? And so I would actually like, here's a request for startup. I would actually love to see someone do that for enrichment activities. Mm. So many enrichment activities don't accept credit card mm. and have terrible billing systems. And actually it would be beneficial for both sides. Enrichment Activities would get paid more regularly if they would just take a credit card on file. For the parents, like if you get a reward, like that is a part of your spend today that is not currently captured by any card spend. So issuers, if you're anywhere, from any issuers in our audience, please come talk to me. I really feel this should exist. I would love to brainstorm on this topic with you. Oh, that's great. I mean, it almost sounded like a request for a startup <laughs> for a one-click checkout for enrichment centers. No, the era of Fast and Bolt and all those guys has come and gone. Oh, too bad. But yeah, I mean, enrichment centers, man. Don't get it. Even it's like tennis, you know, my kid's tennis class or soccer or whatever. It's just such a pain to pay for. Yeah. And on related news to the women's card and so so forth, Dewstreet Asia and Nikkei Asia <laughs> wrote a report on decision makers at VCs focused on women representation. So basically some key statistics they said was that Women now account for 17.4% of all decision makers at VCs headquartered in Southeast Asia. However, 67% of Southeast Asian investors don't have a woman in an investment decision-making role. And they define it as somebody who has the ability to lead deals, sign checks, and sit on company boards. And this is across about 400 funds that they're looking at. And they think that it's gone up uh, 15% over time, but they still feel like a lot still needs to be done. So any quick reactions, I guess, to the statistics here? I mean, what's your reaction? Are you surprised? This is old news, right? Well, I think it's nice that the number's getting better. I mean, I think that's one. Come on, she had... Off an incredibly low base. Yes. I mean, I don't know. I'm not ready to pat ourselves on the back. Like, literally two-thirds of firms have no female decision makers. So in the one-third that do, they're accounting for this 17%, which is like one in six. Yeah, yeah. Investment decision makers is a woman like okay great 
I guess maybe that way not, I'm not ready to throw a parade. I'm, I'm not ready to throw a parade, if that's what well, you're asking. Well, I'm not saying that. You just asked me how I reacted. I'm just saying, you know. But yeah, it's fair. If you're growing at 15%, I don't know what the time frame was, but I guess there's a pretty slow growth rate because there's going to be like, what, 10 years before you actually kids 30-something percent? Yeah, I'm not holding my breath here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, my first job in venture was in, oh, God. 2000, my first job, I had, a, I had a venture internship my sophomore year of college. So what was that? 2003. My first full-time job in venture was 2007. So at least like 20 years ago. And it was kind of the same. It's gotten slightly better. People talk about it more. They didn't really talk about it as much before, but the dynamics are still pretty similar. Like you said, it's a low piece. <laughs> Do you have something uplifting to say? I hope you have something uplifting to say. I feel like if I'm going to say something uplifting, you're going like, to mock me relentlessly. So. I mean, it is kind of the basis of our relationship, but no. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It is what it is, which is yeah. like, the numbers aren't great. It's probably reflective of like finances and industry as a whole. But I think another part of it is that it's a sort of cottage industry, right? So it isn't like it's something that has like really established pipelines. And so when you think about what the pipelines are, which is like investors from other firms, oh, the other firms already didn't have many women. It's mm. successful entrepreneurs. Well, entrepreneurs as a whole tend to be male dominated. So that also is a pool that is skewed. Or right. people who kind of like grew up in the industry, like they started as associates and kind of worked their way up. Well, there are just not that many of them because, you know, for a long time, there just weren't that many firms. I think the stat, we talked right. about this before, right, which is like 80% of the money being managed today is by funds that haven't been in existence for more than 10 years. Right. So if you just think about what the top of funnel feeders are, there's just not that many and it's a really small pool. So you kind of get this crazy stuff. I mean, I think on the optimistic front, the things that I would say that should cheer us is more women are starting their own firms. So rather than sitting around waiting to be promoted by all male partnerships, they're like, I'm going to go start my own firm. Some of these growth and crypto firms were started by women. So like Mary Meeker's fund, there's a new two female GP fund just started by Jess Verlily and April Underwood from Twitter, I think just announced last week. So I think that's the way that change is going to happen. More people are just willing to do that. And with more attention to it, their LPs are saying like, hey, I want to allocate to that. I think the second thing is with the growth of like syndicates and angel investing, there are people coming up through that path, which was not as common, I would say, 10, 15 years ago, where I can be a value added angel. I can put together syndicates of 100, 150K and I can build track record that way. And then I can roll that into building a fund. So I think those are kind of like the bright sides of it. But that's all I got. <laughs> okay, well. Talking about VCs who've kind of set up their own funds, we do have, for example, a quote here from Valerie Vu, Ansible Ventures. She was previously on podcast twice on bravec.com. She said, in the past, male VCs rejected startups such as Pinterest, Stitch Fix, and Bumble because they didn't feel excited or connected to the problem being solved. This highlights the importance of diversity in thoughts and experiences brought by female investors. So this is a quote on Nikkei Asia. Just want to get your reaction to that, Shian. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true, which is like the Stitch Fix founder is a friend of mine. We went to school together and she had a really tough time raising, even though she had a great business. She was super savvy. She herself had worked in venture before. She went to Stanford undergrad, Harvard Business School. Like she had every advantage in the book and it was still hard for her. Right. So that's totally true. I think often when people can't really understand the customer or the problem, they're kind of like, oh, the market's too small. Right. I think there's some topics that people are like uncomfortable with. Like I remember a friend was pitching a startup that could do a lot of diagnostics through menstrual blood. Yeah. And basically she was just like, the moment I said the words menstrual blood, you could see the entire investment committee being like, Ugh. you know, like, don't want to talk about this. And they'd be like, is the market big enough? And you're like, I don't know, half the world, they menstruate. Is the market big enough? So yeah, I mean, I think that that's true. 
But I think people also realize that and they're trying to start actively working through their blind spots and trying to get better perspective on those things. So I think the same thing is true for like, it is particularly true for where the female is the end consumer and people may not understand the customer journey or the pain point as well. But this thing also exists for other blind spots. Like you're from a developed market. It's really hard to understand why emerging markets mm -hmm. have certain types of purchasing behavior right? and vice versa. And so I would agree with Valerie's comments. Yeah, you know, I think it was looking at a company that was basically looking at groceries and so talking about helping intermediate the relationship between wet markets and households. And turns out all the decision makers are homemakers in Indonesia for this. So it was like 95% was the numbers. So a big part of the reference check process and customer check process was basically talking to homemakers to say like how and would you buy this and what's your purchase decision, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, there's a very hot category but that's a good example where, for example, being understanding or being familiar of what's it like with the customer target is really important. And that's one aspect of it, but there are many other aspects. I was in childcare, so that was an interesting category. My last company in education tech. So a lot of them are women decision makers, honestly, as part of the purchase decision that we're working with. Obviously, jewelry is a big category as well. So I think it's an interesting categories. Yeah, blue now. I mean, heck. Making money, in, you have made blue money. You have made good money in blue now. Oh, yeah, for sure. Exactly. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Buy diamonds categories. at Costco. That blows my mind, actually. At Costco? What? Yeah. <laughs> Another Sorry. reason Costco is awesome. I just, I just, I just don't know how I'm going to tell my wife. Like, hey, I got you a diamond from Costco. But I think that I think interesting dynamic, which is I think so much consumer spend, and I think there's a saying that from China that says like women hold up half the sky. Sometimes I kind of think about it quite a bit, which is like, yeah, consumption span, so many joint households as well, where both partners could potentially be making a decision on purchase and so forth. And so having empathy with at least, like I said, half of the consumers in the world is a minimum requirement. And so I think for me, what I've noticed is that a conversation does this have is just like a lot of VC funds should just be like, hey, you know, we have a giant blind spot if we just don't have a voice at the table, like you said, for consumer awareness. Yeah. Totally agree. I think there's another quote here that's interesting. And I would love to get your response to that. So Jennifer Ho, a partner at Singapore-based Integra Partners said, for me, the trickiest part of being a woman in a male-dominated industry is that you're still the exception rather than the rule. It's very seldom about outright discrimination. More often, it's the way you're ignored in a meeting or asked to manage the schedule or the questions you've asked and the constant wondering if a man would have been asked the same questions or treated the same way. What are your thoughts? I don't know. I think about what I tell my children a lot, which is you can't control what other people do. You can only control what you yourself do. Mm. So people are going to think their own thoughts. I can't control that. I'd rather not spend any time thinking about it. Being a better investor and working with my own strengths. I think gender aside, I think everyone has a different style. Everyone has a different way that they show up, a different way that they bring value to founders. And it's important to recognize that. I have some partners who are really strong on CAC. Right. I have some partners who are like really strong on emotional connection, empathy, all these sorts of things. And we're just all kind of like good at different things. And so we have to show up and win deals based on what we can do. And yeah, probably there are times where men wouldn't be asked the same questions that we would. But like, there's not a whole lot you can do about that. You can't control mm. the other person. You can only control yourself. So, you know, I think my general approach is just try to like diffuse things with humor. I don't like a question. I just try to make fun of it. And hopefully... The person asking realizes it's ridiculous. And I mean, it's interesting. I don't know. I read a quote where little girls are told that they mature faster, so they should be more patient with little boys. But why aren't little boys told that 
they should look to little girls as examples of leadership and maturity since they are maturing faster. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of this stuff, but like, I think in business, it can often be hard to achieve things if people perceive you as an activist who yeah. want to beat the drum on a very specific point. And I feel that you can get, you can change more hearts and minds basically by building relationships with people and showing that you're really effective. So I don't know, maybe that's not particularly PC. I mean, I think it's fair, right? I think the question is, there's a way we look at the structures and also we look at it from an individual perspective. What can you control versus what can you not control? I don't know. Yeah. I think as well. I mean, I think from a structure perspective, like things that we do, which is like, hey, we started our own firm. You know, we have two out of three DPs are women. We really try to strive for unbiased, open application process. It's not a warm intro yeah. required type of deal. And if it's someone we know personally, we try to ask someone else on the investment team to evaluate it, right? We try to remove bias from all parts of the system. And that's like kind of our part of the universe that we're trying to make as fair as possible. But that kind of goes back to like, what's the zone of stuff that you can control? And I think, you know, we want to try to like promote other women, suggest yeah. other women for speaking spots, make introductions for them, do all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, like there's a bunch of stuff that we're not going to be able to control. And I, I, I can't spend too much time thinking about that. Yeah, I think that's true. I think panels and representation is important. So I remember I was on a panel. It was all guys for angel investors. And I wasn't an organized. I just showed up. But then I got feedback from several friends to be like, hey, you're on this panel. Are you speaking? And it was all guys. And I was just like, okay, now I know. And so I think there's been a few times now where I'm just part of, you know, and I just a sent a message to the organizer. I'm like, could we at least have a female representative on this panel and just have that conversation? Thank sometimes you for being an ally, Jeremy. I appreciate it. But I think the other yeah, aspect yeah. of that is like sometimes you yeah. get added to these panels and then all they want to do is ask you questions about being a woman when the panel is about being an investor. Ooh, how do you feel about that, Trian? I don't like it. Shocker! You'd <laughs> <laughs> be like going after Jeremy and be like, how do you feel about being Asian? <laughs> yeah, like what if I just like, Jeremy, how does it feel to be an Asian investor? And what would your answer Jeremy, be? Jeremy, how does like, it feel to be an investor of black hair and short, right? I mean, I don't know. Do you spend any time thinking about being an Asian investor? Well, I mean, there's a symbolic value, right? So I think you have to serve that role of being representation. I mean, I experienced that to some extent. I was an Asian founder in the US. I was considered a minority from the perspective of accounting, from a fund perspective and so, so forth. Yeah. And my co-founder, she's a woman as well. So I think I shared before, so VC was like, oh, that's great. We encountered you in our diversity metrics twice. You know? uh, uh, yeah. Oh God. Did they say that out loud? They're like, oh no, they said, I don't they said that it out loud. <laughs> yeah, I know. So it's like Caucasian female co-founder and be an Asian male. And then they're like, oh, it's great. Yeah. You both love education. And I was just like, <laughs> sorry, like the files, download files, <laughs> memory. Call memory. Just like, okay. Oh boy. But I mean, what was I going to do at that point of time, right? I'm just going to be like, yeah, great. Can we talk about the pitch? And, you know, hopefully it's helpful if I laugh and play along. Yeah. Well. Yeah. But I mean, I think there's different tiers. So okay, I think things are slowly getting better. I think one, I'll say, well, I have to say something optimistic now because you asked me to do it for which you were mocked. But I would say that. I think one thing I'm starting to notice is that I think if there's really bad behavior, I think something to come up is becoming more obvious that it's wrong and people talk about it. I think that's there. I've heard bad stories about inappropriate behavior and then people are talking about it and they get penalized. I've seen actions by VC funds to ding the various folks and make sure there are the right follow-ups, for example. Yeah. Like inappropriate workplace relationships and so, so forth. I think that's improving, right? Yeah. I would say, yeah, that's probably true. I think yeah. the sort of Me Too movement has empowered people to basically call stuff out, bad behavior more. Right. 
and I think that's definitely like, what is it? Sunlight is the best disinfectant. Great. So bring more focus on people's behavior and be like, hey, that is so unacceptable. <laughs> that is so unacceptable. That's really kind of the phrase. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah. I think that that's, that's true. Did you ever have to do sexual harassment training when you were in the US? So, okay. I got an interesting story here, right? Which is, <laughs> you know, startup, you need to have these like workplace posters and then you buy one of those one page so they can fill up everything so that it's like, all done and then obviously you do training with each of those panels right and you write it down and then i always remember that there was a section that they had which was like in x situation you need to report to the fire marshal right then you write this write the name who the fire marshal is and then there's a line for like sexual harassment officer and then i had to write my name but i was like like shouldn't it be like sexual harassment reporting officer rather than sexual harassment officer i'm just saying right you know i was just saying like this is we could rename this. But there was like a requirement in Boston for us to, to detail. I don't think there's equivalent in Southeast Asia, not that I'm aware of. No, I don't think so. But like yeah. in California, if your company is above a certain size, you have to do yeah. mandatory state-mandated sexual harassment training. And you exactly have to watch right. these yeah. videos. And like yeah. David Schwimmer is in these videos. And so you're like, wow, didn't he make enough money from friends that he doesn't have to make weird sexual harassment videos for the state of California? Wait, is he the trainer? No, he's like an actor. Basically, what they do is they act out scenarios and then they ask you questions like, is this acceptable? Is this not? Like, (laughs) This guy is the guy. So he's like awkwardly. Ross. Ross. Yeah, I know. But I mean, he's awkward as Ross, but I'm just saying like he's actually acting out. Yeah, yeah. So he's like the boss or he's like the like creepy colleague or whatever. Like, you know, it's just. (laughs) Sorry. It's hilarious. Well, he Sorry, did recently. Tangent. He recently did an ad for a gambling ad. Effectively, it was an app store, and then it was like Coin Master. It's basically slots. Oh, great! Guys, as a game, there's a unicorn. I think Inside Partners invested in them, making bank Israeli company. But yeah, I think Instagram was like, "Whoa, Ross really took a turn there." So yeah, I mean, I guess he's doing all the ads. So I think that's a fair point. I think there should be minimum requirements on like whistleblowing, sexual harassment. Actually, I think whistleblowing is an important one. So I actually had to recently help a Web three startup. Somebody saw something that was inappropriate and then basically had to do all the legwork from scratch to understand, like, should I report? Should I resign? What are the consequences for reporting? See in Southeast Asia? In Southeast Asia, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think what was interesting to hear a little bit is, yeah, there's no mandatory requirement. There's no whistleblower protection, pretty much. So I think it's like an interesting dynamic. So obviously, it's a broader issue than just sexual harassment or so on and so forth for women, representation, etc. But I think there's so much prevention that can really happen from that. Yeah. <sighs> any advice you would give to women VCs I mean I wouldn't I'm on the journey too right I wouldn't presume to give advice to other investors I do get a lot of requests from people wanting to break into this mm. space right I think there's lots of different backgrounds that people can have to come in not just the traditional two years banking consulting two year startup and I encourage people to really just start thinking about the process of VC right there's like the sourcing picking helping exiting Mm-hmm. And you want to basically demonstrate competence in one of these things. To the extent that you think you have interesting sourcing or picking skills, like right. start writing about it. Show a record of your thinking. Because that's essentially right. what investing is. It's like thinking right. and then making a decision. And so you can do that without actually investing. You can start right. sourcing things and you'd be like, oh, here's why I think these things are interesting. Why or why not? Here's why I would invest, whatever it is. And I think that's actually a really good exercise to demonstrate those things. And I kind of don't encourage people with pure finance backgrounds to go straight into VC. 
at least early stage, whereas a lot of early stage is like pretty hands-on and operational and you don't have a ton of like context or empathy for that stage. And so I do always encourage people, if you've just done two years banking or whatever, go work at a company or even fresh grads, go work at a company instead of trying to get straight into VC out of college. I agree. And then if you're from a non-traditional background, even more, you're going to have to prove that you can do these things. And that's why even more writing, doing a podcast, whatever it is, but documenting the quality of your thinking becomes even more important. Because you could show that to anyone who's interviewing. And if you're writing, especially if you're really interested in niche spaces and you become an authority, people will find you. So people will reach out to you and be like, hey, what do you think about this? Or you want to come and interview with us versus you applying in. So I think that actually is more effective. And I think the act of doing it actually improves your thinking as well. Right. I agree. I think what's interesting is that, yeah, lots of folks want to break in. And I think the tricky part that I would often advise them is actually understanding what a VC does and seeing whether you actually want to be a VC. I think there's a lot of taught leadership <laughs> that VCs do, podcasts included. But I think being thoughtful about actually whether you want to do that, whether you want to take meetings with lots of different folks, whether you want to do that picking dynamic to actually help them, the timeframes, the economics of what it actually looks like. It's non-obvious. I think you really have to shadow someone to really see and understand what they're doing. And it can be an exhausting job. And I think one thing I heard recently was just like just talking to a whole bunch of junior VCs across the region and a lot of them are exhausted because right now it's a bear market. They're not doing a lot of deals or they've been effectively not doing deals for six months or nine months across as a firm. And then so they're not doing enough work. They're just doing a lot of meetings, doing a lot of conversations, writing a lot of memos, but they're not actually doing deals and actually helping the founders. And that's very frustrating. And so I've heard of many junior and middle folks who are saying like, maybe we should rotate back out into startups or operator life again. Yeah, you have to like the job. Oh, the other thing I tell people is um, it takes a long time to figure out whether you're any good. Yeah. And uh, some people just, it's really frustrating. In an operating role every week, you kind of know what revenue is. You're like, yeah. did I make my number? Yeah. Or did I not? Is it yeah. working? Is it not? And I think with venture, it's like five to seven years. Yeah. And you're you're like, you don't know. There's some intermediate milestones, but you kind of don't really know for a while. So you have to enjoy the process because the outcome is unknown. And I think that can feel, that indeterminate outcome can feel really scary to people. Yeah, I think you get to look good because as a VC, your job is to meet people, you know, be on panels and speak. And that's part of the job. But whether you are good at a job, (sighs) jury's still out, right? I think. Yeah. And a lot of it is luck. And, you know, my mom says better to be lucky than smart. So I'll take it. But what cycle were you in? True. How much dry powder you had at that point in the cycle? How did you play it? So that stuff all matters. Yeah. I think one thing I think about, and maybe less for women VCs, but like you said, non-traditional, right? So you're some sort of outsider. You're a minority. You're not from the country, whatever it is. I think one thing advice I often share is you really have to understand companies because at the end of the day, yeah, you're selecting for them. You have to understand them from a financial basis. You got to understand them from a team basis. You got to understand the product market fit. And if you don't understand a company, I think it's very easy to believe you understand a company because you read the memo, right? You know, you read the website, you read all the stuff, but whether you actually understand the company, that's something that you have to do and you have to demonstrate and you have to believe in at some point. I think that's something to and I think it's a bit easier actually to understand how that happens, like you said, when you're working at a startup, when you're working from the inside, then you can actually see that, pass out the gloss and look on the inside. Yeah, every startup is a shit show. And so it's just like how much shit you can put up with. They're just super messy. And so yeah. it's like, what kind of mess can you stomach? But also like, what kind of mess is normal versus what kind of mess is going to kill you? 
those are actually important distinctions. Yeah. And I think working at a startup is great because it's very meritocratic in the early days. It's all hands on deck. People get stuff done. You got to do change. No one really cares, right? So I think some of this unfair selection processes really kick in in larger organizations or kind of like organizations that can afford to kind of like look past merit in that sense. Totally. Shea, um, when you look back on time. Oh, uh, God. When I Any advice you have given yourself five years ago distance. when you were, you know, early, you know, as an investor, right? Five years ago, any advice you've given yourself on the investing front? I mean, the advice I would give myself is I should have started angel investing earlier. So I was so heads down when I was working at NerdWallet that I like didn't have bandwidth for anything else. And right. I feel like I should probably just have, like lifted my head up periodically and be like, hey, what are my friends doing? Maybe I should just write some checks here, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even like... Going back to business school or I read, I wrote a few checks to some business school friends, yeah. but business school and like my undergrad friends and things like that, you know, you really can write small checks if you have knowledge and relationship Right. and getting more reps in, I think is important right. for an investor. Right. Right. And so that would have just like, I mean, the nice thing about my fun strategy is I do get a lot of reps in, but right. I could have done that even earlier. Yeah. And that would have risked your approach that were giving yeah. you the skill set and you would have found out if you liked investing, right? Yeah, I was talking to someone. He was set up his first fund. He's a minority. And he said, like, yeah, my biggest advice to, to himself was to not do it so early because he was like, whoa, you know, he was able to successfully launch the fund and so, so forth, but it just took so much work. And he didn't realize how much risk he was actually taking that in retrospect, he said a few more years of investing would have given him a better chance of success. I thought it was interesting to hear that advice and reflection because it makes me think sometimes it's really good to start, get started and do as much as you can. And sometimes I think you just have to take a step back and get prepared. And I think that's the, I wouldn't say philosophy difference, but I think that's a nuance that has to be taken care of. Yeah, totally. On that note, Shien, uh, any parting words of advice? I don't know. I always feel awkward when people ask for advice. It's like, what, what do I know? We're just all trying to do our best here. But I mean, I think having a conversation, really reflecting on whether you like the work, as you said, Jeremy, I do think that they're important. And I think people probably don't spend enough time on that. Yeah. For me, I 100% concur with Shien. So now that you said that, I think I have to do to my number two is do the math. Uh, I think it's obviously you have to meet the founder, believe in the founder, but you got to do the math on market size, the product market fit, acquisition costs. Just do the math. Because if you do the math, I think you're better than a good chunk of investors out there, actually. And so I think that's an easy way, if you're comfortable doing the math, to, to just be thoughtful about putting the numbers in writing and just saying, hey, do I believe this? What do I have to believe? What do I not understand? What do I have to believe in the future? And I think there's a huge value add to the founder when you have that conversation with them openly, but also it's a great way for you to better differentiate between which are the good companies versus the great companies. Totally. On that note, peace out and see you next week, Shuyen. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave.